Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Brandy. You may be seated. Let's pray together. To our eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one who has made it possible for the last to become first. Father, your thoughts and your ways are so much higher than our own. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so too are your ways and your thoughts above our own, as your word tells us. We behold the universe and all that you have made, and we marvel at your creation and the beauty of the work of your hands. We behold our lives and the abundant blessings you have poured out on us. And we marvel at your provision and your kindness. And we behold our sin and all of the ways that we fall so far short of you. If we truly marvel at the breathtaking, stunning majesty of your grace and your goodness to us through the work and blood of your Son. And even as we acknowledge and celebrate all that you have done for us, we are reminded again by your word this morning how easy it is to turn our eyes from that and to focus on ourselves and our own effort. But please help us to remember that every good thing we have is from you. We pray that in our own lives and in the life of this church, you would help us to walk in complete and total dependence on and obedience to you, that we would pursue you with all that we are, and that in all that is said and done here, you would be high and lifted up. Help us to remain faithful to you, to place others ahead of ourselves, and in all things to say your will and not ours be done. And now we come once again to the preaching of your word. And it is very much your word that we desire to hear, not mine. Father, as we open your word this morning, help us to not gloss over it or to assume that we have already learned all that we need to know. 
Rather, use it to pierce the depths of our hearts and minds, to illuminate the darkest corners of our souls. And if there are any here today who do not know you, use it to bring life where there was death. Use it to shake us out of the complacency toward our sin, to create in us a zeal for holiness and a love for all whom we may encounter, that we would remember that every single person is made in your image. It is as ever in the name of your Son and by the power of your Holy Spirit that we ask these things. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. If you haven't already done so, please go ahead and take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20 is where we will be spending our time today. Now, if you're new to Redeemer, if this is your first time visiting us, you're joining us in the midst of our series as we work our way through the book of Matthew. So as you're turning to chapter 20, I mentioned during the final point of last week's sermon that we'll be taking it up again today because a lot of the same point that was mentioned there is taken up here. So that's going to be our plan. Now, even if you were here last week, I recognize that some of the details may be a little hazy for you, and that's okay. If you're anything like me, it's hard to hang on to that. You know, quick show of hands, let's be honest. Who struggles to remember week to week what was in last week's sermon? Don't be super spiritual. I know who struggles by the time you get home for lunch? Remember, wasn't it? You know, I, I get it. I understand that. As much as I love to listen to sermons, as much as I love to read, the older I get, the more I find, unless I try really, really hard, it just kind of falls out of my head. So I, I take solace, at least, in a quote. Um, it's often attributed to Ralph Waldo Emerson, of all people. But he says something to the effect of, I remember neither the, me- the books I have read nor the meals I have eaten, but still they have made me. So I, I hang on to that. Now, students, if you turn in your next paper or your book review and you say, my pastor said I did not have to remember this book. I will take your teacher's side when he or she fails you. Do not put that on me. But having saying all that, say two things. One, let's pray that the Lord would help us to remember, to learn from, to be shaped by all that he would have us to hear from his word. And second, having acknowledged our very human frailties, let's do remind ourselves of where we were last week, what's brought us to this moment, because it's kind of one continuous thought. Recall, in recent weeks, we've been working through a series of passages where Jesus is talking about the kingdom community, what life in the kingdom will look like, who is in, who is out. And then last week, he took an interesting turn in three separate conversations where he completely upended his culture's expectations and, frankly, many of our own about who mattered and why they mattered and what he really cares about. You remember first, we saw him receive a group of children to bring them into him, to bless them, over and above the more seemingly important people. He said, don't hinder them from coming to me. Let them come. And then secondly, he addressed a guy that we know as the rich young ruler. And he did it in shocking fashion by showing this ruler that even though he thought he was doing everything right, he also thought that he could acquire eternal life, that he could earn good standing with God. And thus, because that was the case, it was impossible for him to be saved. Now, this astounded the disciples, leading them to ask, well, if that's the case, then who in the world could be saved? And the reason that was so shocking, so astounding to them was because they were judging the exterior life of this man. And it checked all the boxes that they had. On the outside, he looked very, very good, very put together. But Jesus turned that upside down because he exposed his heart. He said, I I see the heart. I know what's really going on in here. And he wasn't finished because third, he then turned to his disciples after that conversation and they were asking, well, we've done all these things that you just said. What are we going to get in exchange for this? And and Jesus, in, in loving rebuke to them, pointed out, 
you get the kingdom. You get everything I have to offer. Anything that you're going to give up for me is going to so pale in comparison. I promise you it will be worth it. But again, going after their hearts, he said, but you're so focused on the least important thing that you're missing the point. And he gave them a final caution at the end of last week's passage where he said, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because it's the mirror image of the final phrase in today's passage. So what we see, particularly in those second and third stories from last week then, is that Jesus is intensely focused on and cares about the heart of those who follow him, on their motivations, on what's driving them. And that thread is going to continue in today's text, hence the title of today's sermon, which is what drives you. You know, as we turn to today's text, he's going to prompt his original hearers and us to examine those exact same questions. Do we really understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us? What actually motivates our love for him? What drives us to pursue and to serve and to obey him? And th- these are weighty questions that deserve serious consideration on our part. But if we were to sum it all up as always, then I think the big picture we're going to see running throughout all of today's text is this. Because God's salvation of sinners through the work of Jesus is so gracious, then we are free to and should love, obey, and serve him from a spirit of genuine love and gratitude. Let me say it again because we're just going to hit this over and over today. Because God's salvation of sinners through the work of Jesus is so gracious, then we are free to and should love and serve and pursue and obey him from a spirit of genuine love and gratitude. So with that, let's consider our first point this morning, a day's wage, a day's wage. Look back at verse one with me. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Okay, anytime you see Jesus use the phrase, for the kingdom of heaven is like, you can know that he's about to tell a story that we call a parable. Now, if you're new to Christianity, if you're new to the Bible, you may or may not be familiar with Jesus's parables. That's okay. If you're a reader at all, I would actually commend to you a little book by a pastor and author, Jared Wilson. It's called The Storytelling God. And it's a book where he just takes a lot of Jesus's more well-known parables and he just breaks them down and illuminates them. It's a really helpful resource. I think you would find it very beneficial. But for our purposes this morning, a ready-to-hand definition of parable can be simply this. It's a short story using everyday situations and imagery to illustrate a spiritual truth. So it's where Jesus takes something that's gonna be very commonplace to his hearers, and he's gonna teach them something through it. But there are a couple of things we need to keep in mind anytime we're working in Jesus's parables. First, we have to take care to neither over or under interpret them. I remember a pastor who was hugely influential in my life he used to tell a joke when he was trying to explain parables. We were college students, so he was trying to really get down our level. But he would, he would joke that you know sometimes the disciples would ask Jesus this seemingly very simple question, you know, something like, where do, we, where do we get some bread? And Jesus would stop, and he would give them a Jesus-speak parable where he would say, in the east, the scorching wind blows, and the fig leaf falls, and in the desert, a camel weeps. You know, just some crazy thing, the disciples were like, okay, cool, like, we just wanted some bread, but those camel, weeping camels, man, something else, I think he's crazy. You know, these things, and, and he would go on to make the, the more serious point of we have to be careful not to try to overinterpret every last little detail of a parable. Sometimes a vine is just a vine. So let's just take the story as it is and we'll work through it. But secondly, we do have to remember Jesus' teaching and admonition in all four Gospels. We see this in Matthew 13, um, Mark 
4, Luke chapter 8, John chapter 12, where the disciples ask him, why do you keep teaching in these parables? And he says, sometimes I do it to hide the meaning except for those to whom I want to reveal it. And so that should, that should cause some humility in us as we come before the Lord this morning into his parables, even though it's a simple story, and ask him, Lord, give us a heart to understand. Help us to see what you would have us to learn here. And especially here, this is one of those places where the chapter break doesn't serve us well. Remember the chapters and verses came much, much later in history to help us break it down, but it, it disrupts the flow. So let's back up to chapter 19, verse 29, get a running start, and we'll see how Jesus unfolds this. So chapter 19, verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So Jesus has just cautioned the disciples that sometimes it is the least expected who will receive the most. And now he's going to explain that statement with this parable. So again, this whole thread is connected throughout. So let's walk through the parable together to see the imagery of it, to make sure we're all seeing the same things. And then we'll dig into what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples and us through it. So you have this language of vineyard and laborers within it. And that's very, very common biblical imagery. It's often standing in for Israel, for God's people, or just for God's activity in the world. And as we see the parable unfold here, the context of it, I think it will be summed up, uh, to paraphrase commentator William Hendrickson, as this. It's Jesus describing what's going to happen when God reveals himself and completes his work at Judgment Day by comparing it to what takes place in this story between the owner of an estate and his employees when at the day's end he decides to pay them, to give them their reward. Now it's very very crucial that we understand what this parable is not. This parable is first not a lesson about labor management relationships or wage policy. I'm sorry, if that's what you're here for today, I know you're gonna be very disappointed. We'll nerd out on law stuff later. That's not what the parable is about. It's fine. Secondly, more, more importantly and more seriously, this is not a parable about how we are saved. It's not about earning our salvation. We've got to keep that in mind because if we don't, it will lead us to some really, really weird and dark and untrue places about what that means for us. Because as we see both with the disciples at the end of chapter 19 and the laborers here, these are people whom Jesus has already brought into the kingdom. And now he's discussing that motivation with them and the reward and the heart that they have behind serving him. So we have to keep that context in mind, what it's not and what it is. Because he goes on in verses three through seven to hire different laborers throughout the day. And this is one of the spots we don't need to dig too deep into the imagery. We just need to know that at this time in this culture, the workday for a laborer, for a day laborer, ran roughly from six in the morning until six in the evening. So the early laborers are probably hired around that time, around that six in the morning time, and they're promised a denarius for a day's work. Now, if you've got a study Bible or if you read commentaries, you can find all kinds of attempts to figure out, okay, how much exactly was a denarius? It's too hard, like the, the cultural and economic differences are so vast, it's really hard to make a one-to-one -one comparison. But you can just know, think of a day's wage for kind of an entry-level job today. That's gonna give you a rough, rough measure here. So that's what they're promised, day's, day's wage for a day's work. Um, and so then, uh, that's the agreed wage. Then those who are hired at the third hour, that means they start work at about 9 a.m. Then those at the sixth hour, about noon and the ninth hour about 3 p.m., and the 11th hour about 5 p.m., by which time, if you are a day laborer, you are getting very desperate. Why? 
Well, if you've ever experienced life paycheck to paycheck, this is that in very extreme form because for many of them, they worked for the day for enough food for the day. So if you didn't get enough, you didn't eat well or at all. So by the end of the day, they're willing to take whatever because there's not much left. So that's the understandably stressful context for what's about to happen in the following verses. Because look at verse eight. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Now this is our first indication that something different's about to happen because normally it would have been the reverse order for payment. You would have paid the, the guys who came out first, worked the longest and send them on their way and then get proportionately less. However, here, something else happens. Look at verses 9 through 12. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Uh-oh. Well, you can see the problem right away here. You remember the laborers who were hired earliest in the day, they were promised the denarius. But then everybody else we see in verse 4, he says, you go into the vineyard too and whatever is right, I will give you. So when the late hired workers who would have been expecting a proportionately smaller amount get this full denarius, they're ecstatic. This is a huge, huge day for them. And you can see how this would you raise the expectation of the earlier hired workers who again would not normally have been around for this part of payday but here they are because Jesus is making a point. So immediately their rapidly inflated expectations are crushed when they too are paid only a denarius. And, and we can sympathize with the complaint. I mean, you, can, you can picture them. It says it was hot. You know, they're, they're tired. They're like, Wait a minute. We've worked all day. It's hot. We're tired. These jokers barely even broke us. You're paying. Are you kidding me? What is wrong with you? Why would you do that? I mean, we, we get that feeling. We may not say that to our bosses because that's not usually a good idea, but, but we understand the heart behind it. And yet that's exactly the story Jesus tells. So to what end, what point is he trying to make here? Well, that's where we'll get to next. But before we go there, note the similarity between the disciples' complaint and the previous chapter. Jesus, we've left everything. We've done all of this. What are we going to get? Similarity to that and the laborers here, we've worked all day. What are we going to get? There's a clue here about the heart and the motivation that Jesus is getting at, and he's about to address all of this in the next few verses. And so that's going to be our second point, generosity begrudged. Generosity begrudged. Look at verses 13 and 14. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. Now note the language of friend there. Remember, at, in the parable at this point, it's the master of the house speaking who, who represents God. That's who he's standing in for here. And he speaks to the laborer as a friend. So once again, we see that this is someone who's already in right standing with God. Just as the disciples were, this is somebody who's in right standing there, which should help soften the rebuke that the laborer receives, even as Jesus is trying to correct the mistaken attitude. And so he does so first by pointing out that the laborer is receiving exactly what he was promised and which he was earlier very glad to receive. The problem only arises when he begins to compare himself to others around him, which, if we're honest, is a temptation that can very easily beset every single one of us. You know, as I was finishing preparing to preach this week and kind of going over everything, I was doing it in our living room, which puts me in full view of a sign that Brittany had made for our family several years ago, and it, it hangs kind of on one of our main walls. And it says, gratitude turns what we have 
into enough. And that's, that convicts me a lot, I have to be honest. It, it weighs on me, and it's good. It's good that it does. Because in this life, we will always have the option of focusing on what we have, on focusing on, of focusing on what God has done for us, or of focusing on what we don't have and begrudging what God has done and does for others. So let's take care this morning and every day to keep our eyes fixed on what God has done and will continue to do and has promised to do. And we're going to come back to that in a moment. But Jesus isn't finished making his point. He continues in verse 14. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? So Jesus continues correcting this very mistaken attitude now by broadening his point from the, the, the laborer's view of things to focusing on the master's view. He reminds the laborer first that it is the master's choice as to how he will pay his workers, and that is because it all belongs to the master. This is crucial for us to remember because, as Psalm 24:1 declares, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. And again in James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There is a reason that almost every week here when we prepare to gather our offerings that we say something to the effect of we do this both as an act of worship and as a reminder that all that we have is from the Lord and we want to do these things well. That's not just like fun church, happy, clappy preacher phrase. That's from the scriptures. We must Remember that these things are true. We have to remember and fight hard to not forget that every last inch of creation, every last second of history, all of it belongs to and is created by the Lord. It is his right to rule as he sees fit and to do with it and do with us as he pleases. And if we remember that, and if we remember that every good thing we have comes from him, that ought to radically reshape our attitudes and our motivations, frankly, about everything, and most certainly about how and why we serve him. So Jesus goes on, and he finishes in verses 15 and 16. Or do you begrudge my generosity, so the last will be first, and the first last? Now, Jesus' question there is very interesting. Depending on your translation, it may read as it does here as do you begrudge, or you may have, are you envious, or maybe even should you be jealous. The, the literal translation actually reads, is your eye evil, which was a phrase they would have used to get at the idea that the laborer was so consumed by his self-centered envy and, and the perceived wrong that he thinks has been done to him that he cannot be thankful for what he has received. He can't see the good that has been done to him and to his fellow laborer. Do you ever find that to be a struggle? You know, when something good happens to someone else, a neighbor, a coworker, even, even maybe a friend or a family member, it is your natural inclination to celebrate, to rejoice the good that has been done to them. Or even if it's just for a moment and just on the inside, is it to begrudge them the good that's happened? To think maybe you deserved as much or, or even better. We have to take care because those seeds of bitterness can form deep roots with surprising speed. You may find it helpful to remember, I know, I do, Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why indeed, why do we do that? Now, if Jesus had to work this hard to make the disciples, 
who he called, who walked with him in the flesh for over three years, day in and day out, if he had to work this hard to make them understand the point, how much more do we need to work to make sure we grasp it? I think much. So that brings us to our final point, a parable applied. A parable applied. So, so it is that Jesus closes this parable much as he began it when he says, so the last will be first and the first last. And you know, Now that we've worked our way through the plain text of the parable, let's step back again and look at the whole picture to make sure we, both that we understand what Jesus means when he says that many who are first will be last and the last should be first and how that ought to affect our lives. You know, for the disciples, at least one thing he is cautioning against here was the temptation that he knew would arise after he is gone for them to focus on themselves, to focus on their own effort, on the fact that they had joined Jesus first. You know, they were the first ones to lay it down, to give it all up, to follow him, that they had given so much for him and that they would be tempted to want to lord that over everybody who would come after them. And if you think that seems like a stretch, again, we've already seen a hint of it in Peter's question back in chapter 19. You know, Lord, what are we gonna get for this? We've done all these things. But it's going to become especially explicit next week when Roger preaches the rest of chapter 20 when we see James and John's mom go ask Jesus, hey, can they sit on your left and right hand? Now, look, in the next service, my wife and my mom, in fact, will be here. Far be it for me to doubt the fierceness of a mother's love, but you know, you know they came in for a lot of grief and the disciples like, oh, your mom had to go talk to Jesus for you. That's so sweet. Look at you. you know, we laugh, but Jesus knows. He knows the absolute necessity of our, of our motivation, of our everything being grounded in and forged in gratitude for who Jesus is and what he has done because our own impulses constantly pull us away from that. It will constantly turn us toward thinking, looking at and exalting ourselves over everyone else of thinking we deserve credit for what is ultimately God's work. It's just fallen human nature. And sadly, we've seen that play out way too much in big C church history, time and time again, when those who accrue any kind of power, any kind of success in church life start to think, I've accomplished these things. Look at what I've done. Man, Lord, it's a good thing you have me. Now, most of the time, we know better than to say it out loud, but that's, that can really start to creep in. Now, we probably can't do anything about the grand sweeps of history, but what can we do right here at Redeemer? What can we do in the context of this extraordinary congregation and body that the Lord has given us? I think we can remember that it's not about who's been here the longest. It's not about who does the most work. It's not about who works the hardest. Now, that is not to say that we are not enormously grateful for the many, many, many of you who have labored for so long and worked so hard to make so many wonderful things happen at Redeemer and the Lord. We are fantastically grateful for you and we continue to need every one of you. But it is to say that we have to remember that all of our postures should be not how can the church serve me? It should not be does the church conform to my desires? It should not be, does this make me happy? It should be, how can I best serve the Lord? It should be, how can we best steward well all that the Lord has given us here? How can we love one another? Well, friends, if that's our heart, if that's what drives us, that changes everything. We can and should be grateful for all whom the Lord has brought here. Whether you've been here for 13 years, 13 months, 13 minutes, in which case, welcome. We're really glad you're here this morning. And for those that he's yet to bring, we mean it. We, we absolutely mean it when we say that every good thing here is the Lord's doing. 
It is. We know that. But we have to keep saying it. We have to keep reminding ourselves because it should be our joy to celebrate his work in every one of our lives and the life of this church. You know, he has been and he continues to be so very, very good to us. Pastor Dan Doriani said it well when he said, referencing this parable, that early workers must know that God treats no one unfairly. If they stumble, they do so over God's grace and generosity, never his injustice. That's a good word this morning. So what else ought we to do in light of today's passage? Let me give you three things, two negative things to fight against and one positive thing to proactively pursue and then we'll be done. First, fight against viewing God's grace as a zero-sum game. What do I mean? You know, the disciples and the laborers got so caught up at looking, what they, looking at what they had done that they forgot all about what God had done for them. You know, when Jesus says the first will be last and the last will be first, don't think that means that God's grace is some pie that we have to fight over who gets the last piece. Everyone can be the last two or first. This is not a limited list here. That's not the point. Everyone can do this. God's grace is so inexhaustible. We can, we must, we should be overwhelmed with joy and gratitude for what he has done and continues to do and what he has done and will do in the life of others. It's endless. There is no end to what he can do. And that should free us from that kind of rat race. Second, because God's grace is inexhaustible, and even if you know that you are saved by this bountiful grace, fight against approaching the Christian life like a burned out clock puncher just trying to earn the wages for another day. This can happen so subtly and so easily if we stop delighting in Jesus and looking to him and instead looking at and taking pride in ourselves. It's a dangerous road to go down when we start thinking, well, yeah, I know he saved me by grace, but, but now I gotta earn it. I gotta keep it. This, this is on me. I'm gonna do this. Uh, theologian Don Carson puts it well in the form of a very bold, even shocking question when he asks this. Do you really want nothing but totally effective, instantaneous justice? Then go to hell. And I don't say that to be crass. I say it because we have to remember what Jesus has done for us, exactly what it is he has saved us from. And doing so is a great antidote to complacency and apathy toward our sin and toward our pursuit of holiness. So third and finally, what can we do instead? We can make sure that we never ever, ever stop thinking about, reflecting on, delighting in, and thanking God for what he has done for us in Jesus. We can continually remind ourselves and one another. Friends, that's part of why we're here is to remind each other because sometimes it's gonna be hard for you to remember. Sometimes it's gonna be hard for someone else to remember, but to always remind one another that his grace has been poured out on people, ourselves very much included, who deserve nothing. Christian, if Jesus has saved you today, then he's given you the kingdom. What more can he give? What's left for him to give? And you know what? If you're here today and you don't yet know or trust Jesus as Savior Lord, then that's his offer for you too. You can lay down your strivings. Again, you can cease the spiritual rat race because you need not and cannot earn his favor or his salvation. He's done that for you. Jesus extends the same offer to you that he does to everyone else. Repent and believe in him. And it is his great delight, it's his good pleasure, it's not begrudging to save you because in his kingdom, the first will be last and the last first. So friends, let's run the race of this life. Let's run it in pursuit of Jesus, not in some misguided effort 
to earn it, not in some misguided effort to exalt ourselves, but because he's already done it. Let's run, because we're running home to our Father and to joy unspeakable. Let's pray. Father, you've done it all. Every last thing that we could not do, you have done in and through and by your son, Jesus. And on the one hand, Father, that, that feels so commonplace because for many of us, we've heard it all of our lives. And yet, for eternity, that will be the central reality of universe and all of history. It's what you have done. So I pray today that if we belong to you, you would give us a renewed sense of wonder and awe and humility before you. That not for one second will we take that for granted. And for anybody here today who does not know you, oh Lord, I pray that you would break open their hearts, help them to taste and see and know that you are good, that you love them. And for us all as we go from this place, May our hearts be shaped by that reality. May, may, our every, may our every ambition, aspiration, desire, motivation, reaction, may every part of our lives be driven by a desire to love you well, to lift you high before all who will see us. It is once again in your son's name and your spirit's power that we pray. Amen.